passage comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Hear the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Christ Community. My name is Tyler, uh, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I am so glad that you've decided to be part of our gathering uh, today. You know, some mornings, I, uh, I wake up church, I look in the mirror, and I see my dad. Um, and I don't mean that I physically see him. I'm not saying that he and I look alike. In fact, I was uh, adopted at birth, so there is absolutely no uh, genetic resemblance that we bear, even though plenty of salespeople have said that they can see it in us. Uh, I, uh, it's not there, right? I'm not thinking of a physical resemblance of all, but what I'm thinking of is that many days I notice kind of this other type of connection, uh, this other kind of resemblance with my dad. You see, I look in the mirror, and metaphorically speaking, I can see uh, John Cherneski. I can see his attitudes and opinions. I can see his preferences and dispositions, his virtues and his vices. I see uh, him in me. And I think that's because I've been shaped and molded by my dad, and I've been shaped and molded by my mom. And from time to time, something I say or something I do will remind me of that fact. Uh, you know, perhaps I'll be driving down the road and someone will cut me off and then a word or two will slip out of my mouth and I'll say, oh, there's mom. Uh, or I'll be doing a project around the house and, you know, you run out of some kind of supply you need. And I'm like, no, you know what? I'm not going to go to the store. I'm just going to rig it with what I have around here at the house. And I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, there's dad. The truth is uh, that I have been shaped and formed by my family of origin and you have too. Uh, in big ways and small ways, maybe in good ways and some not-so-good ways, uh, for better or worse, you have been shaped by the people who raised you. You've been molded by the people who modeled life to you. Uh, you have been uh, shaped by those who were around you most when you were young. We all have. That is just the way it works. And this is something that relationship specialists, those who kind of spend their time helping uh, people get along with significant others, know. They know that conflict in relationships can often emerge because two people with very different family backgrounds bring different assumptions and values and habits together. And when that happens, sparks can fly. Um, you see, it's because every family, uh, whether explicitly or implicitly, answers these two questions by their habits and behaviors. They give definition to these two statements. They say, hey, as a family, this is what we do, and this is what we don't. Hey, as a family, just by kind of living in this space, seeing how our culture plays out, there's some things that we know we do and some things we know that we don't do. And we are formed in those settings. We're shaped by how our family answers those statements. And so in many ways, big and small, obvious and discreet, we all carry the practices and patterns of our family of origin. 
Whether your family of origin was better than you can imagine or whether there are things you wish about your family of origin that could be different, we've all been profoundly molded by those with whom we've spent that precious time around when we were young. So why do I say this? Well, it's because for the past three weeks at Christ Community, we've been studying the book of Acts. And we've been engaging what in many ways could be called the story of our family of origin, spiritually speaking. Uh, we've been looking at the church in its earliest days. And Luke, the author of Acts, he's been telling us the stories of our mothers and fathers in the faith. Remember Luke, this medical doctor, this scholar, this really learned guy, he's meticulously compiled the story of the church in its earliest days. He sought to outline for future generations what things were like when it first started out, what habits and practices the church valued. He wanted to identify exactly what kind of family this was that the Spirit was forming now that Jesus went to heaven. And so he crafted this careful history of Jesus's first followers, and we've been studying it. We've been looking at it verse by verse, and we've learned so far in our study that this first community of Jesus followers, uh, the earliest church, was sent into the world with a message of good news for all people that was intended to be shared with everyone everywhere. That was kind of the big idea of our sermon series, Sent, that Gabe wrapped up for us last week. And now we're launching into a new sub-series, still studying Acts, but just kind of under a different banner headline. And this series is called The Beauty of Weakness. And so over the next eight weeks, as we work our way through Acts chapters 2 all the way to chapter 9, we're going to see how God uses small things, how God uses simple things, how God uses ordinary things, and sometimes even seemingly weak things to accomplish his mission in the world. And specifically this morning, I think we're going to see in this study of Acts chapter 2, these five verses, that the Spirit used simple communal practices early on to form his folks into people who looked like Jesus and to build for them a powerful reputation and witness in their community. And so today we're going to slow down. We're going to look at these five verses that tell us a whole lot about our spiritual family of origin. And my hope for today is that when our time together this morning is through, We'll be able to look at this family of origin, this spiritual family of origin, and say, hey, just like them, there's some things we do and some things we don't. And we may not look identical, but we can see some kind of resemblance in this community. That's my goal. That's what I'm going for, that we might see that, hey, there's some patterns and habits that marked them that still mark us, or there's some habits and patterns we see there that we'd love to see more in our community. That's what I'm going for. And this morning's text gives us a lot of opportunity to ask, gosh, are we embracing our roots? So I'm really ready to dive in. And if you're interested in learning more about our spiritual family of origin, would you join me now in Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 42, Acts 2, 42. It's on page 911 of our community Bibles. I mean, in Acts 2, just a little summary, Luke is recounting how the Holy Spirit came to the early church. And we learned last week when Gabe taught that the Spirit, it came to the church, and this prompted Peter to give a really eloquent sermon about who Jesus is and what that means. And so we read last week this long sermon from Peter kind of saying, hey, Jesus, who you killed, right, really is the Savior, you need to repent and believe in him. And then in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Luke says that as a result of Peter's preaching, those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So in Acts 2.41, we see that the group of people who are convinced that Jesus is Lord, the group of people that are convinced that Jesus is who he said he was, that Jesus is somehow worth following, it's growing dramatically. 
I mean, it's gone from zero, right? There were zero followers of Jesus when he died because all his followers, all his closest friends, right? Peter, John, everyone else, they all thought that the Jesus movement died with Jesus. So it's gone from zero not too long ago to now a movement where 3,000 are being added to their number in a single day. And that's happening because there's multiple people that are going around and saying, hey, this Jesus who you saw die, I've seen him alive, right? Mary Magdalene was the first. Some other women at the tomb were next. And now there's hundreds of witnesses going around and saying, hey, Jesus is alive. And thousands are being added. And in Acts 2, we read about this remarkable, rapid growth in the church. Thousands are added in one day. Uh, But then what? This growing community, this rapidly increasing community. Hey, Luke, writing this text, what does it look like? What did they do? What habits and practices shaped this community? Well, Luke tells us in Acts 2.42, there he writes, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And kind of this one verse, Luke summarizes the activity of our spiritual mothers and fathers. He summarized what characterized those first few thousand Jesus followers by saying, hey, hey, they were committed to getting together and studying. They were committed to eating together. They were committing to praying together. And I think that this bit of information, this summary statement, this broad description of life in the early days of the Jesus movement is remarkably valuable for us. Because it shows us that, hey, before there was a New Testament, or before there were any kind of religious leaders or deacons or elders or leaders or popes, before there were any bylaws or statements of faith, before there was any kind of Christian publishing industry or music industry or conference industry, uh, before fish bumper stickers or dove t-shirts, before any of that, in the earliest moments after Jesus went to be with the Lord, right, he ascended. In those first few days of the community of Jesus followers, Luke's giving us a glimpse into the practices that these people felt were important, that our spiritual mothers and fathers prioritized. And Luke says, hey, what they did is that they devoted themselves to the teaching, they ate together, they met together, they prayed together, they gave together. Luke's saying, hey, they set the pattern for what Jesus' people should and shouldn't do. In Acts 2, we see what captured the attention and focus of the earliest Jesus followers. And so I want to break down kind of what they did. We're going to be looking into this dense text and seeing, hey, what are some characteristics? What are some marks? What are some features that kind of spell out what this early Jesus community looked like? I think there's four characteristics we need to notice. Um, first, reading Luke's description, I think it's abundantly clear that these early Jesus followers, they met together. They met together. They gathered with regularity and with discipline. They were serious about their Jesus community. Uh, We see this again explicitly in 242 when Luke says they devoted themselves uh, to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. This Greek word here that's translated as devoted themselves, uh, it's a word that literally means like to persist. You know, they they persisted. They, They wouldn't give up. They were committed to meeting with one another. Uh, There was one dictionary that I was looking at this week. I love the definition. They were trying to describe this word, and they said, hey, this word, uh, think of it as meaning to continue to do something but with intense effort, right? You're keeping on. You're persisting in it. And in Acts 2, Luke said these earliest Jesus followers, they were persistent about meeting together. They weren't going to give up on it. They weren't going to kind of phone it in. They weren't going to just skip out when the calendar got full or cancel when things got hard or inconvenient. They weren't just going to show up when it was easy. Uh, They persisted in regularly meeting together. 
Uh, Luke echoes this idea again in verse 46 when he says, and day by day, you know, they were attending the temple together. There's a, there's a regularity and rhythm and pattern to their engagement and to their meeting together. They got together regularly for study and for teaching. It was a core component of their collective identity. They met together. And notice what they did when they met together. We see it in verse 42. They met together and they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and to this fellowship, right? Luke gives us a little insight as to what took place at their gatherings. He said, hey, they spent time studying what the apostles said because the apostles had spent time with Jesus. These were the people that were closest to him while they were on the earth. And so we want to know every story about Jesus. We want to hear everything that Jesus taught. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, right? Tell us more about Jesus and to each other and to fellowship. They wanted stories of what Jesus taught, and they wanted to be able to apply it to one another in this community. They were devoted to engaging with one another. So the first characteristic, the first thing we see here in Acts chapter 2 is that they, they met together. And then Luke goes on and he says they ate together. Uh, they ate together. This is the second characteristic that Luke illustrates when he describes this early community of Jesus' followers. Uh, again, we see it in Acts 2.42 when he talks about the breaking of bread, and then it happens a little bit later in verse 46. He, again, that same uh, phrase he picks up, and day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, right? Receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. What Luke is describing here is a pattern that old scholars have referred to as a table fellowship, right? This was table fellowship within the early church. Specifically, Luke is saying that Jesus' first followers, a community of diverse people from a variety of backgrounds and social classes, they, they gathered together and they ate together on a regular basis. They shared the table with one another. And their commitment to share the table, it, it was countercultural. It was something unique in the first century, just as it was, uh, continues to be, I'd say, something unique today. Because in Luke's day, the rich had nothing to do with the poor. And the educated had nothing to do with the uneducated. And the free had no use for slaves. And the men weren't interested in the opinions of the women. They would never sit with one another, much less dine with one another in a, a formation of like equal dignity. Right, where everyone was affirmed, where everyone was valued around the table. But the earliest Jesus followers said, hey, not so with us. So they made a habit of sharing the table with one another, which was a first century way of saying, hey, we're peers here. We believe that no one's better than anyone else here. Around this table, everyone has dignity and worth and a voice. We're not a community where we play favorites. We're not a community of hierarchy and status, right? Instead, we're a people that eat together is a sign that we believe we have much in common if we have Christ in common. So we see that they met together and they ate together and they ate together to remind themselves and to remind those around them that, hey, Jesus invites everyone to follow him and he doesn't play favorites. Luke says this first group of Jesus followers, they practiced table fellowship. They ate with people that they shouldn't have eaten with, right? They sat down with folks at the table that their mama told them not to talk to, you know? Right? They broke bread with people their granddaddy used to whisper about. This early church, Luke said, they made a habit of eating together. So they met together, they, they ate together, and they gave together. The third thing is they gave together. There was remarkable generosity in this faith community. That can't be denied. Uh, this is the third characteristic that Luke points out when he's talking about Jesus' first followers. He says in verses 44 and 45, uh, "...and all who believed were together and had all things in common." And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had 
need. Luke says, hey, Jesus' first followers, they weren't just identified by their communal practices, right? The fact that they got together and they ate together a lot. Uh, They were also identifiable by their financial practices. They weren't just recognized for what they did at the table. They were recognized for what they did with their wallets. And here's what their generosity looked like. They were willing to sell something of value if someone in their community encountered deep need. They were willing to use their resources for the benefit of those without resources. Now, in a few weeks' time, we're going to dig in really deeply to what generosity looked like in the earliest church. We're going to have a full sermon about it. Actually, I think Gabe's going to get the privilege of doing that one. Uh, But it's coming up in a few weeks' time because this generosity theme, it doesn't just go away in Acts. It appears again and again and again throughout the book. But here's what we need to know for today. Scholars who research this kind of early Christian movement Uh, They say that this kind of sharing of generosity, this kind of giving pattern that we see here in the early church, it wasn't something that like, hey, you you sold all your property as a precondition of joining community, right? This wasn't kind of a commune that you gained access to by like, hey, first sell everything you have, then bring certified check, and now you can be part of kind of our, our faith community thing. That wasn't how it worked at all. But instead, generosity occurred as members of the community found out about needs that others had. And then they would voluntarily give up certain luxuries and possessions in order to care for the needs of their community members. I mean, I love how this one scholar puts it. He he wrote that these radical acts of generosity occurred as the community became more cognizant of one another's needs, right? So they're meeting together, they're hearing other people's needs, and more convicted of their common bond in Christ. So again, that's what this generosity looked like. It wasn't like, hey, sell it all, pay your dues to get in. And again, Gabe's going to get to talk all more about this. But what we need to know for today is they were intimately aware of the needs within their community, and they were willing to leverage things they had of value, to sell those things in order to care for the other needs of the community. There was remarkable generosity in these earliest Jesus followers. Luke says they were unique in their communal practices. Sure, they spent time together and they ate together, they learned together, but gosh, they were also unique in their finances. They, they gave generously and sacrificially, leveraging all they had for those who did not have. And finally, Luke says, fourth component, so that they're meeting together, they're eating together, they're giving together. Luke says, hey, they prayed together. They prayed together. And again, we see this in verse 242, and he says they're devoted to the prayers. And then also in verse 47, when he talks about them praising God and having favor with all people, right? There's this this attitude that, gosh, these, these first followers, they would not stop talking with God and thanking him and praising him for the ways that he was blessing their community. They were so grateful that God was bringing joy to their group and harmony to their group and courage to their group to be faithful witnesses that they were constantly and continuously in prayer. Prayer uh, out loud for real needs in real time together uh, was a regular part of the life of Jesus' first followers. It was something that they valued. This community of Jesus followers, in the earliest days, they were, they were completely devoted, radically hospitable, remarkably generous, and relentlessly prayerful. They were learning together. They were living together. They were sharing together, praying together. They met, ate, gave, and prayed. They are our spiritual family of origin, and these are the things that matter to them. This is what they did. Right? Every family answers the questions, this is what we do, this is what we don't do. This is what they did. They set the pattern for what the church is and what the church does. And so their story ought to be 
forming us and shaping us as we consider what it means to follow Jesus in Kansas City in 2018. So now I just want to ask, hey, in this moment right now, as we've listed out all the details, all the things that characterize this early movement, hey, what is their story saying to you? You know, when you hear about our ancestors in the faith, what, what comes to your mind? I mean, where do you feel strong? Where do you say, gosh, I can see that resemblance with them, you know, and where do you feel room to grow? I mean, perhaps you're here this morning and you'd call this church your church home. You'd say, yeah, Christ community, that's my spiritual family. This is my church. Well, where do you see us kind of stacking up when it comes to our resemblance to our spiritual mothers and fathers? And where do you see us as a church? Again, if this is your church home, if you say, gosh, I know this place, where do you see us needing to do a little work? You know, you might say, hey, Tyler, I feel like we're really good at you know, giving, but we have a little more work to do in the praying. Or Tyler, I feel like we're devoted to gathering for teaching, but I think we could get better at caring for others in this community. I don't know what your answers would be, but start thinking right even now. If you would say, this is my church home, where do you see this faith community stacking up with this initial church? Where would you say, gosh, we're real strong? And where would you say, hey, maybe we have an opportunity to grow? I mean, what is this story saying to you? And specifically, what might it be asking you to do? I mean, where might you need to take a risk? Where might you need to reach out? Uh, What might God be calling you to do to make this an uncommon community where all folks have dignity and wealth, right? They're eating together, where they're meeting together, learning together, uh, giving together, and praying together. What does this story say to you if this is your church home? Or perhaps you're here and you're just checking out church. Maybe you've been away for a while or you've never been a part of a church that you love. I want to ask you this morning, Uh, has this, what we've been reading in Acts, has this been your experience of church? Is this what you know church to be, a place where people meet together, eat together, give together, pray together? Uh, Or have you experienced something else? Have you experienced something that maybe didn't quite resemble what this early group of Jesus followers was all about? Maybe you've been to a place that doesn't quite resemble the people that were closest to Jesus right after he lived on this earth and went to be in heaven. Maybe you've been in faith communities that were places of hierarchy and favoritism. Uh, Perhaps you've been in churches that reeked of like a selfishness or a stinginess or there's kind of an in crowd and an out crowd. Um, And if that's been your experience, if you'd allow me to ask you one question, I would just love to ask this. Uh, Would you feel the same way you do about Jesus and his church if Acts had been your experience? Would you feel the same way about Jesus? Would you feel the same way about his church if instead of whatever you encountered, you encountered a community of Jesus people that bore a closer resemblance to this group? Because I'm telling you, church, these early first followers of Jesus, uh, they had this right. Like all of us, right, I'm sure they weren't perfect people, but their priorities were in order. They were doing precisely what Jesus wanted his church to do. And how do I know this? What makes me say with any kind of authority or any kind of confidence this this early church had it right? What lets me say that, gosh, I think their priorities were in order? Well, I'm convinced that this early church understood what Jesus wanted from his followers because we have written evidence from another eyewitness who was with Jesus in a small rented room on his final night before he was betrayed. See, there was a night right before Jesus was kind of taken off to be arrested and then crucified when he was together with his followers. And he had washed his disciples' feet. 
which was something that like embarrassed them, right? Because this master, this teacher that they followed, uh, they hadn't fought ahead. No one was there to wash their feet. So their master sweeps in to do it. And they're like, oh gosh, we're embarrassed. You know, my boss just saw my feet, right? So it's a little awkward. It's a little quiet in this room. And in the quiet of that moment, in the awkwardness of that space, right after the one they admired had taken on the lowly role of a servant, Jesus pulled his closest followers together. He gathered them up and he said, hey, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Jesus says, look, I know you've heard all the commandments, right? And I didn't come to abolish the law and to fulfillment, but to fulfill it. But gosh, there's a new commandment I'm giving you. And it's simpler, but it's more hard. And he says it's that you need to love one another. And he goes on saying, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Right? This is Jesus' way of saying, hey, hey, just as I have washed your feet, just as I have shown you patience when you messed up, just as I have shown you grace, and just as I'm about to give my life for you, you don't know that yet, but it's coming. Hey, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Jesus says in these last moments together, I'm going to make it real simple for you. You've just got to love like I've loved you. And then he says something profound. Then he says something that should grab your hearts this morning if you're here and you'd say, gosh, I'm a Jesus follower. I'm a Jesus person. Jesus, in his final address to his disciples before his death, says, hey, hey, by this people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus says, by this folks are going to know that you're the real deal. By this, people are going to know that you take seriously that I am who I say I am. By this, outsiders will know that you have faith in me, and insiders will feel care and be reminded of their faith in me. Jesus says, by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus taught his followers that they would be identified by their love. I would argue today that in Acts 2, that is exactly what happens The early church, through these communal practices and through their generosity practices and through their spiritual practices of being devoted in prayer, they display unique, unmistakable love. And the draw to that kind of community is irresistible. And so this ragtag group of Jesus followers, it continues to grow and grow simply by demonstrating Jesus' love to one another, right? They had no marketing strategy except for love. They had no communications plan uh, except for love. And Luke says the Lord added to their number day by day those that were being saved. They grew without any kind of budget for spotlights. Gosh, and you know I love lights. I used to plan conferences. But they could grow without it, and they grew without any kind of budget for printed programs. And I love taking notes, but man, they grew without them. They had one strategy, and it was to love one another in their growth. It continued and continued. It continued under the leadership of Peter and Paul, and their numbers grew, and their reach spread. And over time, these first Jesus followers, they became a religious minority that was large enough that they started to attract the attention of the Roman government. And in 111 AD, Pliny, who was a civil servant in Bithynia, governor of this, like, this small province in the north of Rome, he wrote a letter to the Roman governor Trajan. And in this letter, he asked Trajan for advice on how to deal with this growing group of Christians in his province. And listen to what he says. He says, hey, it is my practice, my Lord, to refer to you in all matters concerning which I am in doubt. For who better can give guidance to my hesitation or inform my ignorance? This is how I begin every letter to Gabe. Uh, (laughs) Great way to write. Flatter your boss. uh, Let him know you care, right? But he he begins by saying, "Hey, hey, boss, I need your help. 
right? There's something that I don't know here. I really need your input. It's my practice, Lord, to refer to you whenever I need help. And then he says, hey, I have never before participated in trials of Christians. So I don't know what offenses are to be punished or investigated or to what extent. He says, and and I have been a little hesitant as to whether there should be any distinction on account of age or the difference recognized between very young or the very mature. And so Pliny's saying, hey, boss, I have a whole lot of Christians now, and they don't really follow our Roman religion, but I'm inexperienced in this. I don't know what I should be looking for in trial, and I don't know how to punish them. Should I go lighter on the older folks or lighter on the younger folks? Should I be more harsh here or less harsh there? Help me know how to crush this group that's different from our practices. And so if you read the full letter, Pliny says, you know, I I knew I needed a little help, so I've done some research already, boss. I tortured a couple of the women in the group that they call deaconesses, right, which is a word that means kind of helper. These were the key helpers, leaders in the church. He said, I tortured a couple of them, and I got some information from them about their group. And Pliny tells Trajan, you know, I've arrested them, I've tortured them, I wanted to learn more about the community. And then he says this, they asserted that the sum and substance of their fault or error had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and to sing a hymn to Christ as to God and to bind themselves by an oath not to do crime, not to commit fraud or theft or adultery nor falsify their trust nor refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. And when this was over, Pliny says, it was their custom to depart and to assemble again to partake food, but, but just ordinary and innocent food. Pliny says, I tortured these women. I wanted to know what they were doing when they're gathered and how they're getting so big. And he said, all I could get from them is that, hey, all we do is we get together and we learn and we study together and we sing a song to Jesus. And we say, hey, with God's grace and with God's help, we're going to do the best we can to love those around us, not to steal, not to commit fraud, not to commit adultery, not to harm our neighbor in any way. And then we go and we eat afterwards. That's it. Right? That's all we're doing. Pliny says, just like Luke, I asked them what they do. I asked them about the secret of their success. And all they could say is that we meet together, we eat together, we share together, and we pray together. This is 70 years after the birth of the church in Acts 2. And then he says this. He says, for the matter seemed to me to warrant consulting you. So he's saying, this is why I had to reach out, boss. It seemed uh, worthy of me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. He said, bro, there's getting to be so many of these people. And don't miss this. He says, for many persons of every age, every rank, and also of both sexes, which never happened in the ancient world that the sexes would be, uh, of every age, every rank, both sexes are and will be in danger. They're going to be in danger. They're going to fall prey to the superstition is what he's saying, right? For the contagion of the superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the village and farms. Pliny is saying, boss, I need some help because this group, it's got people from every background, people from every age, people from the cities, people from the villages, people from the farms. They're growing in number, and they're all feeling attracted to this community, and I don't know what to do because the growth just won't stop. He says they're they're gaining momentum. They're not losing it. Sir, this community, it's collecting people from from every neighborhood, from every race, from every socioeconomic level, male, female, they're all joining. And so I need some help, boss, because I feel like this Roman project that we're on, it it seems like it's in jeopardy. Pliny reaches out to the emperor Trajan because he has some sort of understanding that, gosh, the salute that Caesar is Lord feels like it's in jeopardy. It's about to be replaced. And now we know from our vantage point in history that Pliny's suspicion was correct. His gut was right. 
Something was up with this early community of Jesus followers, and it warranted Rome's attention because now Rome is no more. But the church still exists with a faithful presence in every corner of this planet. And where it is faithful, it continues to gather with these four elements in mind, meeting together, eating together, giving together, and praying together. In Acts, we get a front row seat to watch the Spirit of God form a unique type of community, a community centered around Jesus Christ. And as this community grew, it didn't gain traction through public activism or a great marketing strategy or political persuasion. Uh, It grew, God grew his church through visible demonstration of Jesus-like love. Rather, God grew his church through visible demonstrations of Jesus-like love. And I want to argue this morning that he still grows it that way. This isn't just the story of our spiritual mothers and fathers. In many ways, this is the story of Christ's community. This is how God has always grown his church. You know, last Sunday we hosted a a membership dinner, and so we gathered kind of right over here around some pizza in LaCroix, uh, one of my favorite new additions to membership dinner, uh, to talk about what it means uh, to be a part of this church, what it looks like to be a committed member here uh, at Christ Community. And one of the parts of my job that I love the most takes place after every membership dinner. So we have this big dinner. I know a lot of you have been through this process. And then what happens next after the dinner? Uh, Gabe and I kind of split up the names according to our calendar, and we get to meet individually with everyone that's come to that dinner. And the reason that that's one of my favorite parts of my job is that in the course of those conversations, which usually you know, happen over tasty food or coffee or dessert. So I love that part, of course, right? You get to eat some, but you're you're meeting with folks. In the course of those conversations, what usually happens um, is that the conversation finds its way to this question, hey, why Christ community? You know, what is it about this place that made you want to be a member here? That's just the kind of stuff that comes up in the course of those conversations. And can I tell you uh, that from my seat on the bus, from the role that I get to occupy in this, you know, little family we have here, is a church, uh, is one who gets the privilege of hearing so many of you answer that question. Can I tell you that the reason so many of you love this place is that we still somehow, thanks to God and his spirit, bear a resemblance to this early faith community. We've still got some kind of resemblance to our spiritual family of origin. The reason you love this place, I've heard you say this, is because we gather together to hear the apostles' teaching. The reason you love this place, and again, I've heard you say that, is because we we break bread together each week at the Lord's table to remind ourselves of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. The reason you love this place is because someone at some point in this church has invited you into into their homes for dinner or coffee. That's an answer we get a lot. The reason you love this place is because you've recognized this is a generous community. You said someone... You know, sent me a card or sent me a check or helped me with this. That's, that's a reason I want to be a member here. The reason you love this place is because you know we believe in the power of prayer. What am I trying to say this morning, church? Are we identical to the church in Acts? No. You know, nor should we be because what it looks like to love Jesus in 2018 might be just a little different than what it was in the first century, right? The exact application changes. The mission is unchanged, Right? The way that it might look in our culture, with our practices, with our financial, with all, that might look a little different. But these core commitments to meeting, eating, giving, and sharing together, those don't change. 
What it looks like to love Jesus, it's evolved from the first century to the 21st. It won't look exactly the same, but we should have a resemblance. And the great news for us this morning is that we do. But now the question is, hey, where are those areas where we can grow? How do we sharpen the reflection? What makes us a community that a little more closely resembles what's happening in Acts? Because God has always grown his church through demonstrations of Jesus-like love. And when people encounter that kind of love, it's irresistible. You're fine, Hannah. <laughs> we're all over it. No, really, you are. That's the kind of church we want to be, right? A place where folks are safe, comfortable. They feel like they can join because they feel God's love there. So will you join me now as we pray and ask the Lord to help make us that kind of place? Oh, God, what, a, what an encouragement it is. I feel encouraged um, to be in a church like this, a church that in many ways, uh, from where I sit at least, I can see the resemblance here to your earliest followers. God, it's a, it's a privilege, it's a gift, it's why I love this church so much. This is a place where we are devoted to your teaching, where we're devoted to one another, where we believe in the power of prayer and where we want to lead lives of generosity. But Lord, we know we're not perfect. We know that there's space to grow, and we know that when it comes to this spiritual body, uh, we're all different parts of the body. We all have different things we can contribute. We all have different perspectives and voices. And so I pray now that your Holy Spirit would imply this uh, story, this, this historical factual account of what your earliest church was like, that it would apply that to every one of our hearts in the ways that we need to hear us, need to hear it. Help us know how we can help make this place a space that accurately and fully reflects your love for all people. God, grow us as a church through demonstrations of Christ-like love and obedience, and we'll give you all the thanks and praise when it happens. It's our prayer this morning, Lord, and it's in your powerful name that we pray. Amen.